Last weekend did not disappoint. We had some amazing games that lived up to the hype. We're starting to learn a lot more about what teams are alive for playoff implications and New Year's Six games and more unintended consequences from the new redshirt rule. Let's get into it. And it was BYOG, bring your own guts! Fourth and five, the national championship on the line. Got the big man! I think Notre Dame got it on Notre Well, here we are. It is officially October. That means the season, the regular season at least, is one-third of the way done. We're getting there. We're starting to learn a lot more about teams. As I said, the games from last weekend did not disappoint. They were also revealing in a lot of different ways. Let's start with Stanford and Notre Dame. This was the most revealing game to me because we knew that both of these teams were pretty good. They both had some wins going in. Notre Dame has the win over Michigan in week one. They made the quarterback switch to Ian Book, so they have been looking like a complete team. But a lot of people have been questioning them because after the Michigan game, they weren't playing as good until they did make that quarterback switch last week versus Wake Forest. And then Stanford looked like a team that was pretty good, although Bryce Love has not been performing to the level that a lot of people wanted him to or thought he would this season. Stanford's a team that went in there and beat USC, a a USC team that's starting to look a lot better now. They're also a team that went into Eugene, Oregon just last week. We talked about that game, and they had a big comeback, beat a pretty good Oregon team. And this was a game that a lot of people were thinking, okay, we're going to learn a lot from Stanford and Notre Dame and what their futures are going to look like going forward. And Notre Dame came out, and they just looked like a better, more physical team. But they do what Stanford does. And this is what I said last week. I said, this game's just going to come down to, like, who wants it more? You have essentially the same style of teams. These grinded-out teams that want to run the ball and then go off play action, have their athletes make some plays, and then let their defenses be more physical and wear you out. And when it came down to it, Notre Dame was the better team in this game. They slowly wore out Stanford. They were making more plays. Their athletes just looked slightly more explosive. So that just shows, I think, that Notre Dame is at a level more closer to the Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Georgia realm of things as opposed to kind of that lower tier teams in the top 15, top 20, which a lot of people are on the fence about. I think Notre Dame definitely had a lot of supporters. I was one of them. I've been saying Notre Dame is going to make the playoff this year, things like that. And I think there were some people on board with that, but I think so many people are just stuck with that Notre Dame taste in their mouth that they never really think Notre Dame's legit. You just always feel like they're going to lose the game. But they delivered very well. They they just came out in this game, and they look, Ian Book looks like the quarterback of the future for Notre Dame. He looks like that main difference. I said going into this season that Notre Dame has all the pieces there. 
we just don't know about quarterback. And there was a lot of teams that I said that about. Basic, I said that about Michigan, Notre Dame, LSU, Miami. And with all those teams, as you can see, their seasons have been shaped by the way the quarterback has played. For Michigan, they didn't have as good of quarterback play in the beginning. They, they lost to Notre Dame, even though Notre Dame hadn't made their quarterback switch yet then. If you look at a team like Miami, who has all the pieces there, Everywhere on their football team, there's talent, and then they struggle because Malik Rozier, when he was the starter, he just was limited, and he couldn't get it done when they played LSU, who had the same recipe. They had good athletes, good receivers, good defense, good running backs, good offensive line, but we didn't know if they were going to have a quarterback. Well, they bring in Joe Burrow from Ohio State, and he's doing very well for LSU, and hence LSU is undefeated, ranked in the top five. So this quarterback situation is playing big everywhere Stanford had already established their quarterback in Costello. He makes plays, but Notre Dame brought in Ian Book, and due to the fact that the rest of the team was just a little bit better than Stanford, that was what they needed to go over the edge. I honestly think that if Brandon Wimbush starts this game for Notre Dame, that it's a very, very close game that goes down to the wire, and Notre Dame might have still won, but it would have been a lot closer. I think putting Ian Book in gave Notre Dame that slight edge they needed to show that, hey, we are a better team than Stanford this year. And Stanford is also a good team, so that just really showed me a lot for Notre Dame. And now Notre Dame has their last real test on paper that we know of so far going forward, and that is when they go to Virginia Tech this weekend. And this game is definitely sketchy for Notre Dame because realistically Virginia Tech if it wasn't for a wacky blunder loss to Old Dominion I think Virginia Tech's a very solid football team they should be undefeated going into this game and they would be ranked you know in the top they were number 12 or something or 13 when they lost Old Dominion then they drop out of the rankings rightfully so because that loss is embarrassing but then they play a good Duke team last week and they pretty much throttle Duke, who was undefeated. Duke was ranked 22, so now Duke falls out. Virginia Tech gets back in at 25, but they still obviously have that lost Old Dominion. They probably would be maybe top 10 right now if it wasn't for that Old Dominion loss, which would make this game for Notre Dame huge again. Not that it's not big this time. It's still a ranked Virginia Tech team, but I think because of that lost Old Dominion, Virginia Tech comes in this game almost with an edge because they might be a little less respected than they should be. And Notre Dame is going on the road. Their other two big wins were at home with Michigan and Stanford, both home games. Now they go on the road to a very tough environment. And Notre Dame just hasn't done that well in these big-time games on the road against these ACC opponents as of late. Um, last year, not ACC opponent, but they lost to Stanford on the road. In 2015, they lost to Clemson on the road. Clemson was a very good team that year. Obviously, that went to the playoff, but Notre Dame was right there for contention at the end, too, that year, and that loss at Clemson would end up being you know, a backbreaker for Notre Dame, keeping them out of the playoff. If you go to 2014, Notre Dame was undefeated, ranked number five in the country when they went into Florida State, who was ranked two, again, another playoff team, but those two games were big for Notre Dame in each of those seasons. They came up short. This year, their ACC big road test is in Blacksburg, Virginia Tech, which of the other places they've been maybe is the hardest to play. I mean, Death Valley and Doak Campbell are really hard places to play when those teams are, are popping, but so is Virginia Tech in Blacksburg at night, and this is a night game. 
at Virginia Tech, and they really get the house rocking for those night games. They're very eager to win this game, I'm sure. And they definitely have athletes and have a team that's capable of beating Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame's better here. I like their odds. Just ever since they went to Ian Book, they just, like I said repeatedly now, that was the changing point this season for Notre Dame where they have a quarterback to go along with all the other tools. And I really think that Notre Dame is going to be a team that competes with anybody this year. I feel like they're going to get a loss at some point. And that's where some debate comes in is like, because I think most people agree that an undefeated Notre Dame team is definitely in the playoff. I just don't see how they could ever not get in going undefeated. But even a one-loss Notre Dame, is that going to be a team that we let into the playoff? I think if their schedule was as strong as it looked preseason, then that would definitely be the case. If you're going to tell me that Notre Dame wasn't allowed one loss when they had, you know, Michigan, Stanford, Virginia Tech on the road, Florida State, USC on their schedule. I mean, the worst team they play is Ball State, which, yeah, that's not an impressive game, but there's a lot of teams out there that play, you know, three or four Ball States a year, maybe even some worse competition. So I think preseason, a one-loss Notre Dame team was definitely guaranteed, but now it's like, okay, Florida State doesn't look as good as we th- they were, you know. They, it's looking like they might have a losing season this year. So maybe that game isn't as important where I think a lot of people thought that was definitely going to be, you know, two ranked high-powered teams when they played. That might not be the case this year. We have to wait and see if Florida State rallies or not. It's looking like they won't. And then USC, they already have two losses. You know, they might not be this top 10, top 20 team that Notre Dame thought they were going to be playing originally with their schedule. So that game's up in the air. I think USC is rallying, and you know maybe USC goes into that game nine and two, which would be huge for Notre Dame and USC. But we don't know that yet. That game's also on the road. Syracuse, though, that's a game that you know before the season we didn't think was going to be a big test for Notre Dame, but Syracuse is looking really good. So maybe that game steps up on Notre Dame's schedule. If you want to segue over to Syracuse, they played Clemson really tough this weekend. Of course, Clemson did have the injury to Trevor Trevor Lawrence, so he had to step away, leaving the only other quarterback on the roster now after all this transfer debacle. So Chase Bryce comes in, a guy that was fifth string about a month ago or two months ago. Um, For those that don't understand what's going on, basically Clemson had five quarterbacks on the roster But Trevor Lawrence, this all-star freshman, who wasn't even the starter, so Kelly Bryant was the original starter, obviously the guy that took him to the playoff last year. Trevor Lawrence comes in, and the two other backups transfer out. So now they have three quarterbacks. They have Kelly Bryant, who's really good, and then Trevor Lawrence, who's really good. Well, they finally announced that, hey, Trevor Lawrence just has a better arm, and we're making him the starter. That causes Kelly Bryant to get all frustrated, maybe rightfully so. And because of this new transfer redshirt rule, He basically says, okay, I've only played in four games this year, so I'm sitting out the rest of the year and I'm transferring, which he's allowed to do now with this new rule, which is an unintended consequence of this rule. I'm going to get back to this rule later. I'm just focusing on this game right now. But anyway, Trevor Lawrence gets hurt in this game now that it's just him left on the roster with this other red shirt, Chase Bryce. So Chase Bryce has to come in and play Syracuse. And honestly, Clemson's just better than Syracuse right now. They were Syracuse was outmatched, but this injury gave Syracuse a really good chance, and Syracuse played really well in this game. They were making plays. Dungy, who's out here from Lake Ridge High School in Oregon, I played against him in high school, 
once. Uh, he's amazing, and he was making some good throws, completing some passes, and especially with this injury and the Clemson offense slowing down just a little bit, that allowed Syracuse to you know ramp their lead up even more. They went into halftime, I think it was like 17-10 or 17-3, something like that, and Syracuse was putting themselves in position to win this game. Just Clemson just had too many athletes and their defense stepped up and they were able to win. But Syracuse definitely has come a long way. They're doing very well right now. I think they could have a 9-3 and season, maybe better if they get a little lucky. But really exciting to see the improvement that Syracuse has made in the ACC. They're looking good. They gave Clemson a run for their money. Uh, I think some people look at this game and don't like what they saw from Clemson. I think this game showed that Clemson is a legit team because their defense had to make plays. They did that. And even though they lost their true freshman stud quarterback, they also lost their other quarterback. So think about the drama that was going on in the locker room this week. It didn't bother Clemson that much. They came together. They still made all the plays they had to when they needed to. They beat Syracuse. Clemson looks fine. I I still think Clemson's going to slip up, but that's because I think everybody's going to slip up. I've said this before. I don't I don't really think anybody's going undefeated, you know. So that might be a good opportunity now to segue over to Ohio State Penn State because th- that game, you know, the outcome of it is Ohio State beat Penn State and now everybody's talking about how Ohio State is in the driver's seat. They're the team that's going to go challenge, you know, Alabama in the championship this year. We're already talking about that. When's Ohio State, Alabama playing? There's been some articles written about how that's the perfect collision course. That's the game that college football needs. Um, which, I mean, that's just a brand argument when you when you say that. I mean, if you're really saying, hey, I honestly believe that Ohio State is the only team that can beat Alabama, therefore college football needs that game, then I understand that. But like right now, I don't think we can honestly say that Ohio State is the second best team, just like we can't honestly totally say that Alabama is the best team. Alabama's looked amazing, but they really haven't played anyone yet. They haven't played that test game. Ohio State, in my opinion, might be better than Bama right now because they just played a very good opponent and they won in what was an epic game. So let's get into the game real quick. Ohio State and Penn State in Happy Valley, whiteout, night game, amazing atmosphere, just the total college football experience this is what college football was about this game right here it was just one of those classic awesome games Penn State fought for an early lead they get a field goal they score a long touchdown towards the beginning of the second quarter they're holding off Ohio State both of the defenses in this game played amazing especially Ohio State's defensive line even though Nick Bosa was out they had guys step up and make plays McSorley was awesome. He was great running the ball. Ohio State did a good job at taking away the run game of Penn State, which is what you kind of have to do because Penn State has been running the ball the ball very efficiently this year, even without Saquon Barkley. So Ohio State was taking away the run game, but McSorley was running the ball very well. He was going back to some of the zone reads. Ohio State takes away the running back. McSorley makes some plays on his feet. I think people underestimate McSorley's athleticism. We all know how great of a passer he is, but... McSorley is just a gamer. He's a guy that comes into every game just fired up, ferocious, just a lot like Baker Mayfield in the last several years. I mean, what we've seen out of McSorley the last three years is just a guy that competes, wants to win, wants to make plays for his team, and he he did so in this game. Now, Ohio State had to fight back. 
we get to a point late in the game where Penn State is up by 13 points with just about eight minutes to go, and that's when it finally looked like Ohio State hit a panic mode, but a healthy panic mode like, okay, this is it. They went out the very next drive, and it was a slow drive to get around to the 50-yard line. Then Dwayne Haskins throws not even the greatest pass over the middle, which is caught by uh, Benjamin Victor, who shakes and breaks some Penn State defenders, gets in the end zone for a long touchdown. Okay, now Ohio State's within six points. They play good defense. They get the ball back with just under five minutes to go, backed all the way up inside their own 10. And by the time the clock hits two minutes, they've driven down the entire field and scored another touchdown and taken a one-point lead. This is where the Penn State defense just basically fell apart tackling-wise. They looked tired, they gave up, and Ohio State went down there and scored. So Penn State gets the ball back, and they're making their way down the field, and it essentially comes down to a fourth and five where they're not in field goal range, so they had to go for it. And they do a run inside run play that just gets stuffed, and Ohio State wins. And it was just really frustrating because it's like Penn State had this game. They had, they looked like the slightly better team throughout most of the game. They had it locked away, but Ohio State was resilient. They came back, and if you give certain teams enough time and then you don't match the intensity, you don't keep playing at the level that you had been playing, they're going to take advantage of that. That's exactly what Ohio State did. They won, and they looked really good too. I mean, this was just two really good football teams. Very frustrating for Penn State, very exhilarating for Ohio State. But something to keep in mind is that both of these teams have some more tough games ahead. Both of them have to play Michigan. Both of them have to play Michigan State. Penn State also has to play Wisconsin. So Penn State has a chance to go get three huge wins to add to their resume. And their now goal is to try to go 11-1. and They need Ohio State to slip up a couple of times, which is not impossible, guys. I mean, I... Ohio State's going to lose to someone that they're not supposed to. That's just what they do at least once a year. Even Alabama does this. A lot of teams do this. If Ohio State loses before the Michigan game, that is where things are going to get really interesting because then the Michigan game is going to come down to is Harbaugh going to finally get that win over Urban Meyer and Ohio State? And if he did that, that would knock them out of the playoff. Penn State would be right back in. So... And obviously that means Penn State's winning out. You know, Penn State can't lose again, obviously. But people are really jumping the gun a little bit when it's like, okay, Ohio State's in the driver's seat. And Ohio State does control their own destiny now. So from the standpoint of Penn State lost the ability to completely control their own destiny. I mean, Penn State does not go to the playoff, most likely, unless Ohio State loses two Big Ten games, allowing Penn State to get back into the Big Ten championship game, assuming they win out. And then, yeah, they'd probably have a really good chance of the playoff. They would be in the playoff. If, if Penn State was 11-1, and won, won the division, and won the conference championship game, they would be in the playoff. Just like if Ohio State goes undefeated or only loses one game there and goes and wins the Big Ten championship, then they are, they're probably going to be in the playoff. But a lot of things can happen. But, yes, this game was very, very big. It's a big-time matchup which is huge for both the teams. It's a conference game, and it's a division game, right? So 
Take, for example, in a couple weeks here, LSU and Georgia are going to play, which is going to be a huge... If, if LSU beats Florida this weekend, that's going to be a game between two top five football teams in the SEC. It's going to be huge. And the loser is okay because, let's say LSU loses to Georgia. Well, then LSU has, still has opportunities to go play Alabama and Mississippi State. They can win out in their own division go 11-1, and one, and then rematch Georgia, or whoever does come out of the East, and Georgia can say the same thing. Where this Ohio State-Penn State game, that's not the case. The loser does not control their own destiny now. They are really reliant on help, whether that be from Ohio State losing and them getting back in it, or just enough chaos happening throughout the country that they get in as an 11-1 team like Alabama did last year or like Ohio State did two years ago. But then it's like that would require the big, big Ten to get two teams in, which even though the SEC did that last year, that's just a really tough thing to do. I don't see that happening this year with two teams getting in. And if Notre Dame gets in the playoff, you're going to have two conferences left out, not just one, which, I mean, that's what happened last year since the SEC got two teams in. We had two conferences left out, the Big Ten and the Pac-12. But anytime you have two conferences left out, that's when people start to get a little frustrated with the system, and maybe rightfully so. Like I've said, I didn't think Alabama really deserved to be there last year, but there wasn't really anyone else that did either. And the way the committee picked the year before, they couldn't put the two lost teams in. So last year was just one of those years where, hey, that fourth spot just was not going to be a strong resume compared to the other three. That being said, though, Alabama did get in, and then they did manage to win the two games, and they were the national champions. So you can't take that away from them. And Penn State's kind of hoping that some scenario like that plays out or that Ohio State loses. And I guess it's an interesting question, like, what's more likely? Is it more likely that Ohio State loses two Big Ten games from here to the end of the season, putting Penn State back in the driver's seat, or is it more likely that Ohio State runs the table, Penn State runs the table from here on out, and that they both get in together? I Honestly, I'd say it's pretty unlikely that either of those things happen exactly that way. But if I had to lean one way, I'd say it's more likely that Ohio State loses two Big Ten games than the likelihood of both of them winning out and everything else in the country going in the way of Penn State that they also make the playoffs. So I think you just kind of have to, if you're a Penn State fan or a player or you want Penn State in the playoff, you kind of just have to root for Ohio State to lose two Big Ten games. And I'm telling you, Ohio State probably will lose at least one. They will probably lose to some team they're not supposed to. And then that is going to give a team like Michigan State or Michigan a chance to have a good game plan and beat them. And remember, Ohio State plays Michigan State and Michigan in the last three weeks. So those are two tough games to end the season out in the last three weeks. So any anything can happen. This is college football. Anything can happen. So just always keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, now I want to go and talk about a little bit of what's going on in the Big 12. So there was a game, West Virginia, Texas Tech. Texas Tech was ranked coming to this game. They got in. They were ranked 25. And we kind of learned from this game, but then it started to think, well, maybe not, but maybe we did. So let me explain what I mean by that. Basically, Texas Tech was getting their butt kicked in this game. And as I was watching this game that morning, I was thinking, okay, yep, I was right. Texas Tech is trash. I thought they were trash. They got blown off by Ole Miss, and Ole Miss isn't that good. And I just did not think they were anything special. And I thought West Virginia was going to roll them, and West Virginia was rolling them. But then in the second half, West Virginia allows Texas Tech to come back, 
and get within a touchdown before getting a pick six. They take it to the house. They win. They seal the deal. And it was a little concerning watching West Virginia let Texas Tech back into this game, but I kind of chalk it up to the whole mental problem of like, hey, they were up 35 to 7 or 10 or whatever it was at halftime. They kind of relaxed a little bit. Texas Tech scratched and crawled their way back into some extra points. All of a sudden, it gets like legit close again, and West Virginia hungers down, and they get the interception. They seal the deal. It never really felt like Texas Tech was seriously threatening West Virginia, and it got to a point where if Texas Tech did win that game, it would just have been like, it would have been more of an embarrassing thing for West Virginia than walking away looking at it as an impressive comeback for Texas Tech. That I mean, that's just at least how I looked at it, but I want to go off this game and talk more about the Big 12 because the Big 12, I think, is the one conference that is the biggest mystery to me. We don't know who's going to win it, and I think that when it comes to Oklahoma, Texas, West Virginia, maybe even TCU still, that we have those four teams all making a run at the conference championship. Obviously, TCU most likely is not going to be in the playoff mix, being that they're a two-loss team. A lot of chaos would have to happen, like a lot of chaos would have to happen for TCU to get back into the playoff mix, but they're still playing for a New Year's Six Bowl game, obviously, which is a great accomplishment if you can win the conference. And we have Oklahoma and Texas playing this weekend, which will be a good game. It's the Red River shootout. It's a rivalry game. Texas has gotten a lot of random upsets in this game. The history of this game is just awesome. I was watching some old Red River shootout games that I have on my hard drive my favorite one is obviously that 2008 game with uh, Sam Bradford for Oklahoma, with DeMarco Murray, Joaquin Iglesias, Gresham at tight end, who was just awesome. And then, you know, Texas over there with Colt McCoy, Jordan Shipley, the awesome receiver, and then Quan Cosby, another great receiver. Uh, Texas also had Earl Thomas, who made plays on defense. Like, that was just a classic game. But not to get off track, this game this weekend, I, it's hard for me to pick because, yeah, Oklahoma's been looking great. They're on track. But something about Texas just makes you feel that they're going to find a way to make this game very close and maybe win this game. I mean, last year, when Texas was not as good as they are this year, they made that game very close. I mean, the Red River shootout last year was very close, even though Oklahoma was kind of a, a superior team with Baker Mayfield and their high-flying offense. Texas kept it close, so that means this year, going into it, yes, Texas has that one loss to Maryland, but Maryland is 3-1 and one now, and looking pretty decent, so Texas had that bad game week one, they lose to Maryland, they've been playing good ever since, they beat down USC, they pretty much beat down TCU, who almost beat Ohio State, so we don't know a lot about Texas right now, but I would not at all be surprised if this game is extremely close. Even Texas winning outright would not completely shock me. And it's going to be really interesting to follow the Big 12 race from here on out because I don't think any of the Big 12 teams are strong enough to go undefeated. I mean, two of them for the running already aren't undefeated. Texas already has a loss. TCU already has two losses. Now, Texas has no conference losses yet, which is huge. TCU has one conference loss, and then their non-conference loss to Ohio State. Oklahoma is not going to go undefeated this year. I'm, I, I think Oklahoma might make the playoff this year. 
like they did last year, but I'm super confident that no one in the Big 12 will go undefeated. I honestly don't think anybody in the nation will go undefeated. I think Clemson's going to get beat eventually. Notre Dame will lose a game. Alabama will probably lose a game. We've kind of just entered an era of college football where undefeated doesn't happen as much. The only team that has a chance to go undefeated, I feel like, is sometimes Alabama because of their just far superior roster half the time, and then obviously because Nick Saban. Ohio State has a chance, but historically, Ohio State has had teams with better NFL roster talent than the one that they have now, and they have lost games to teams that they shouldn't have and been left out of playoffs or what have you. So I don't see anyone going undefeated, and that's why this Big 12 race really starts to get interesting because it's like, okay, you could have Texas beat Oklahoma, then Oklahoma beats West Virginia, which isn't until the end of the season. TCU's still going to have a chance to knock off some some of these teams, right? Like, who's West Virginia going to lose to if they lose? And then the thing about the Big 12 that's interesting is since they don't have divisions, and honestly, I think every conference should probably move to this. It, it guarantees you the best uh, conference championship game between the best two teams in your league. The Big 12 just does their round robin, and then the top two teams play each other. So this year, it's very possible that Oklahoma and West Virginia are the best teams in the conference. Well, they play each other the last game of the regular season. And it's very, very possible that they will just have a rematch of that game the very next week because it's very possible that they both finish as the top two teams in the conference when we get to that point. And that's why this weekend's really interesting because Texas could shake that whole thing up by winning today. If Texas wins today, then you're kind of at a point where we're at a three-way tie. Well, I guess Texas would have the lead in the Big 12, even though they have that one loss. It's a, not a conference loss. They would have a head-to-head -head over Oklahoma. Oklahoma would need TCU, or I mean, sorry, Texas, to lose two more conference games, which that's where it would get a little interesting because Texas already has a loss, and if and they've already beaten TCU, and if they beat Oklahoma, then they just have to avoid an upset, and the only other really tough team they have to beat would be West Virginia, which could easily happen, but then even then, Texas would have two losses, West Virginia... Who knows what their record is, but like things are just going to shape out interesting in the Big 12 is all I'm trying to say, and it's going to be really interesting. I would like to see as much shakeup in the Big 12 happen as possible. It'd be nice to see Texas coming back. I've said that before. But yeah, this Texas-Oklahoma game, not only is it big because it's the Red River shootout, the rivalry, it's an intriguing game. They're both ranked, and I don't can't remember. I think the last time that they were both ranked going into this game might have been, it's been at least a couple years, maybe more. I honestly think that 2007 through 2009 era was the last time they were both ranked going into this game. So it'd be nice to see in the future this game stay at that level. But just in the short term, the implications that this game is going to have on the pack or the Big 12 race going forward this season is just, it's going to be huge. And that's what's really nice is we've got to a point where this game matters so much for the Big 12 this year. And I'm really, really excited to watch it. I want to see what Texas is like. And we're getting to that point where these two new coaches, you know, Tom Herman and Lincoln Riley for Oklahoma, they're probably going to be facing off against each other for a lot of years going forward. And it's going to be interesting to see, like, what coach starts to have the edge and whatnot in the rivalry. So really excited for that to happen. And if we shift away from Big 12 and go to the SEC, where we have two 
pretty big games going on. We have LSU versus Florida. Now, this game also historically is one that's always been fun to watch. Um, 2006, 7, 8, 9, all the Tebow years, the Chris Leak, you know, Matt Flynn at LSU, Jacob Hester, all those games were classics. LSU and Florida have a ton of classic games going back throughout history where they've been big-time matchups. So it's fun to see this game have two ranked teams, especially because Florida is a lot better than I think we initially thought they were when they first lost to Kentucky. We thought, okay, Florida snapped their long streak to Kentucky, and they must not be that good. But now it looks like Kentucky is pretty good with the wins that they've got. They've got wins over Florida now. They beat down on Mississippi State. They pretty much beat down on South Carolina, who's who's all right. And they look pretty good. So now it's like, okay, that's Florida's only loss. That's why Florida's come back into the rankings this week at 22. But will they be able to beat LSU? It's a home game for Florida, but I really don't think they can beat LSU. The main reason being that they are just too limited at the quarterback position. They do not make enough offensive plays. They're not explosive yet. I think they will be eventually with Dan Mullen, but right now LSU's defense is just playing so well, and LSU on offense is also playing very well. Florida will hold the LSU offense to a limited score. I don't see LSU scoring more than 28 points, absolute max in this game. I think they'll score anywhere from like 17 to 24 points, but it's going to be hard for Florida to score. I mean, even 21 points in this game would be impressive for me if Florida can put 21 points on the board I don't think they will I think LSU is going to win this game something like 24 to 13 or 17 to 14 something like that going to be one of those classic SEC showdowns with defense there will be offense but it's just going to be limited especially if if LSU's defense can just get after Felipe Franks for Florida then they're going to be in really good shape I do think LSU will win this game I think it will be close a lot of people I think think that LSU is just going to blow Florida out. They're kind of still on that train, like I said, of they rode off Florida after the Kentucky loss. But I don't see how you can reasonably do that after seeing what Kentucky is and has been since that point and what Florida's done. I mean, Florida looked really good over Mississippi State last week. They were all over them, and it was kind of a beatdown defensively. Mississippi State could do nothing on offense, but Mississippi State did limit the Florida offense as well. That's why that game was low scoring. But that was an impressive win for Florida. A lot of people thought that Florida was going to lose that game outright by a lot of points because Mississippi State's great. But now Mississippi State has two losses back-to-back. They lost to Florida and before that, Kentucky. So going from that game to Kentucky, Kentucky plays Texas A&M. And this is a huge game, guys. Honestly, one of the ones I'm super intrigued this weekend, even though Texas A&M isn't ranked, Kentucky's up to 13. And this will be... Kentucky's toughest game left besides Georgia. So besides Georgia, this is the only team right now that on paper you would say Kentucky has a chance to lose against. I mean, they have a chance to lose to anybody. It's SEC football. But right now, the way they're playing compared to the way the rest of the conference is playing, Kentucky's through most of their tough slate of games already. I mean, preseason, if you're looking at Kentucky's schedule, you're like, okay, Florida, that's going to be tough. South Carolina, tough. Mississippi State, tough. And obviously Georgia, right, later on, we didn't know about Texas A&M yet. Well, they beat Florida. They beat Mississippi State bad. They beat South Carolina handily. Now they're playing Texas A&M. And 
I'll be honest, it does feel like it's time for Kentucky to lose. It Because, and I don't know if that's like a biased thing, like it's just, when you look at Kentucky, like you're like, okay, this is awesome, Kentucky's doing good this season, cool. Well, you still don't feel like Kentucky's any sort of threat to like go undefeated or like make the playoff, finish as a one-loss team. Like you feel like it has to be worse than that. Maybe they're a 9-3 and three team this year, an 8-4, and four, like that's, that's good for Kentucky. But it's hard to see them going, you know, all the way. But if they win this Texas A&M game, then the only other game I would really expect them to lose would be to Georgia. So that, we're going to learn a lot about Kentucky. That's why I'm most excited, because we're going to learn a lot about these two opponents. Is Texas A&M the type of team that only loses to these big ranked opponents? Like, so far, Texas A&M has two losses, but they're to Clemson and Alabama, two of the best teams in the country. Clemson, they played very, very close. Alabama was kind of sort of close early on, but Alabama just kind of blew them away there at the end. But if Texas A&M is probably thinking, hey, whatever, we lost those two games, we're still a really good team, Jimbo Fisher's our coach, and that might be the case, which is why I think, you know, they could go beat Kentucky this week. But if Kentucky wins, then we learn more about Texas A&M, we learn, hey, Texas A&M, you're not just a team that loses to the two best teams, you're kind of probably an 8-4 team again. And you're kind of like a Sumlin with under Jimbo first year, which is okay. It's not like people were thinking A&M's going to win the conference or win the Natty this year. But they did. We're supposed to show improvement. And if they only lose to oh Clemson, Alabama, and maybe one other game and finish nine and three, that is improvement. This Kentucky game is going to show us a lot about where Texas A&M is, and it's going to show us even more about where Kentucky is, because if Kentucky wins then they have to slip up on their own to lose more than two games this year. They're probably going to lose to Georgia. But if they win this game, that Georgia game now sets up to be Georgia's probably biggest game on the schedule this year. Besides, I mean, obviously they play LSU with some other games, but in their own division, they would be playing Kentucky, and they would have to win that game to win the division or hope Kentucky would lose two games after that, which is very unlikely if they do win that game and this Texas A&M game. So this game is going to be... Really intriguing for me. I can't wait to watch it. I've got two Kentucky buddies at my work, and it's funny. Like I'm, I'm a Florida State guy, and I'm, I keep telling them, like I'm shocked. You know, like your team's doing way better than my team, which I don't think anybody thought would happen at the beginning of the year. But that's called football. Things happen. It's cool to see Kentucky, especially with with Mark Stoops doing well. Again, I I know Mark Stoops a little bit from when he was coaching at Florida State. Got to learn about him a lot then. He was a great defensive coordinator, honestly. I think one of the best ones Florida State's had since uh, Mickey Andrews. And he was able to have our defenses. We went from, like, a terrible defense in 2009. Then we hired Mark Stoops in 2010. And from 2010 to 2012, the three years that he was coaching defense at Florida State before taking the Kentucky job, he was just phenomenal. Great, great defenses. Florida State's defenses started a slow decline after that to the point where they are now which is uh, not that good but Kentucky he's done a great job there they have a really good team this year offense is efficient makes plays uh Benny Snell is a, is a great running back who plays with a lot of passion a lot of heart and then their defense of course a Mark Stoops led team is going to have defense they have that they bring it they play well it's just it's going to be really cool to see what happens this week in the SEC because it shapes a lot of things going forward. LSU, if LSU beats Florida, then 
they stay in the top five. Then they go play Georgia soon. Obviously, they have to play Alabama later. Are they going to be a top five team when that happens? If Florida beats LSU, okay, LSU takes a loss. Well, this is the SEC. That happens. LSU still has the ability to go beat those other teams. This isn't a division game for LSU. So if they lose, they have a little bit of breathing room to go, okay, we really do have to win out now but we don't have anybody with a head-to-head over us, right? If LSU loses this game, they're still in a better position than like Penn State is because Penn State lost to a team in their division who now has a head-to-head over them with a better record. They need that team to lose. If LSU loses to Florida, whatever, they just have to go out and beat the teams on their schedule. They don't have to worry about, oh no, now we need Florida to lose and paying attention to that. They still would control their own destiny, even with a loss to Florida. And if they beat Florida, they can say the same thing going into the Georgia game the next week. That's going to be a a top five game. It's going to be crazy, intriguing, awesome, and it means a lot to both teams. But it's not a division game, so if that's your only loss, you're probably still winning your division and getting in. Because if, if your only loss is to Florida or Georgia, if you're LSU, that means you're beating Alabama. So you're probably getting into the SEC championship with that. So really fun stuff going on in the SEC this week. Even it, There's only really two games that I care about in the SEC, but they both mean a lot, and we're going to learn a lot about them. So I'm excited for that. Um, if we go out away from the SEC to the ACC, um, obviously it's Florida State-Miami week. It's rivalry week, which is always fun. However, this year, I just really don't think Florida State has a chance to beat Miami. I wish that wasn't true, obviously, as a diehard Knowles fan. But when you look at this Miami team, they're pretty much a complete team across the board at every position. They are talented. And now that they've made a switch to a younger quarterback who looks to have more arm talent than their original starter, Malik Rozier, they look like a a total complete team. You know, you're kind of wishing... Dang, could Miami have made this change before the LSU game and had a better chance against LSU? But we that's something we just don't get to know. But going into this Florida State game, I mean, I just Florida State's offensive line just I just do not see them holding up in this game. Their offensive line has been terrible, and even though Lander and Dickerson, Florida State's best offensive lineman, did play against Louisville last week, they say he might not play this game. His ankle is irritated again, and he is the only chance Florida State even has at keeping this game close, I feel like, unfortunately, for the Knolls, because Miami's defensive line, their linebackers, are very talented. They are going to blow Florida State off the ball in this game, and probably DeAndre Francois is going to be on his butt a lot. And then you couple that with the fact that Miami's defensive backs are very good, big-time playmakers, and you can just see scenarios where DeAndre is forced to turn the ball over whether that's scrambling and fumbling or forcing balls because of pressure where dbs take advantage it's going to be very hard for florida state to to win this game i i think miami's going to win i think they're going to win big and that's just very interesting for the ACC because then it's like okay miami did lose to lsu and the way they lost to lsu you kind of just thought well maybe they're just not as good of a team i know that's what a lot of people were saying is oh miami was overrated they were number eight and lsu just beat them down like 33 to 7 and that did happen but when i saw that game i didn't the only thing that i saw wrong with miami was their quarterback which is huge that that matters but i was like okay this miami team has all the pieces to be anybody they just don't have the quarterback but they put their freshman quarterback in nikozi perry Last Thursday night against North Carolina, he was lighting it up. He looks good. And if he just improves each week 
and Miami can get over this Florida State game. They won't really be challenged again until maybe like Boston College or Virginia Tech. And Miami, it looks like they could easily run this ACC slate, get into that ACC championship game at 11-1. and And they're probably playing Clemson at that point, who's going to be 11-1 and or undefeated. And now you're at a point, okay, just like last year, Miami wins that game. They're probably going to the playoff, right? I mean, yeah, they got beat pretty bad once this year. But if LSU keeps winning and shows that they are that good of a team, and okay, yeah, they got Miami in a kickoff game when Miami hadn't made their quarterback change yet. They were better that night. But if Miami shows improvement all year, get so that's why I'm just really excited for this game. The other game I'm kind of excited to see in the ACC is Boston College and NC State because we know Boston College is a pretty decent team. And NC State is ranked this week. They're like 23. And they're kind of sitting there undefeated, but quietly undefeated with no big wins. Unfortunately, they were that game against West Virginia got canceled due to the hurricane that came into the Carolinas. which And that is just such a bummer because imagine what we would know about both of these teams being NC State and West Virginia if that game had been played. We would learn so much about those two teams. But we didn't get to see that game. So West Virginia sitting there undefeated with some decent wins, and NC State sitting there undefeated with no wins as of yet. A win over Boston College would show that they are semi-legit at least. And then now you have another ACC team that's kind of poking around at some things. Okay, NC State's undefeated. They got to go out and play Clemson, obviously, and some other teams in, in their own division. But that would show beating Boston College that, hey, they're a 4-0 or 5-0 team now. They're pretty legit. Boston College is all right. I mean, if they blow the doors off of Boston College, then you know, okay, NC State might be a serious threat. I mean, they have Finley, who's one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC, maybe the country. Before the season, there were a couple guys that had him possibly going to be going number one in the draft this year. I don't know if that's going to happen, but he is a really good quarterback. He's probably the best pocket passing quarterback in the ACC right now, maybe besides Trevor Lawrence. But he's a senior, he has a lot of experience. So we also know that if NC State loses, let's say Boston College rolls them, then it's pretty obvious that they're probably were kind of a fraud and they didn't deserve to be ranked and all that. But So I'm just kind of excited to see what goes on with NC State there. So other than that, not much going on in ACC. It's still kind of a Clemson race right now and seeing if Miami can catch up or maybe Virginia Tech. Again, Virginia Tech's only loss so far was to Old Dominion, not a conference game. And like we talked about earlier, Virginia Tech plays Notre Dame. So they could lose that game, have two losses. Still, none of those are conference games. So they don't need other other teams in the division to lose. If the only two games Virginia Tech loses this year are Notre Dame and Old Dominion, and they go beat Miami, well, they're going to the ACC championship game as a two-loss team. And unless they had some help, they're probably not getting into the playoff with two losses, especially an Old Dominion loss. But they're definitely going to a big New Year's Six Bowl game if they beat Clemson in the ACC championship game and having an ACC championship would just be huge for Justin Fuente and Virginia Tech as a whole right now. So ACC is shaping up a little bit and that'll be fun to watch. Other than that, you know, we've kind of talked about all the games that I'm interested in coming up this weekend. We broke down a lot of games from last weekend. I know I didn't talk much about Oregon Cal, but I'm saving that for next week when we talk about the Oregon Washington game because that's going to be a fun one. Um, that's pretty much it for today. I know I said I was going to talk about one more thing, and that was kind of this controversy surrounding this new redshirt freshman transfer rule, whatever you want to call it, free agency, college football, all that stuff. It's mostly coming out of 
Clemson, going back to the Clemson quarterback situation, Kelly Bryant, who was the starter for Clemson last year, took him to the playoff. He comes in as a starter this year. But they bring in this stud freshman named Trevor Lawrence. When Trevor Lawrence gets to campus, the two backups behind Kelly Bryant both transfer out. So now you just have Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant on your team with the redshirt Chase Bryce, who ended up playing in the Syracuse game due to injury. Well, Trevor's been playing good. They're kind of playing both quarterbacks. Kelly Bryant's still starting, but they're bringing in Trevor Lawrence. Last week against Georgia Tech... Trevor Lawrence just looks phenomenal. You're like, okay, it looks like he's legit ready. So they make the announcement that he's going to be the number one quarterback from now on. Kelly Bryant doesn't like that. Obviously, nobody likes being demoted, especially when you're a starter who's taking your team to the college football playoff, right? And so he deservedly feels a little shafted by this. And he decides that he's going to now not play any more games this year because he's only played in four and he's going to redshirt the rest of this year and then transfer and actually play somewhere else next year as a full season. Now, this is only possible because of this new redshirt rule. Again, the new redshirt rule is a rule that basically says, hey, if I'm a freshman or, or anybody, I guess, because Brian's a senior, but it basically was a rule saying, hey, people that are redshirting, you can still play in four games and keep your redshirt. And when I first heard this rule, I think a lot of people were like, wow, what a great rule, right? You can bring freshmen onto your team, redshirt them, and still play them. Because one of the hard things about redshirting a bunch of freshmen for a program, now if you're Alabama, right, or you're Ohio State, you don't redshirt as much, right, because you bring in these five stars and they and they play a little bit. Same at Clemson. But even at those programs, and the rest of the other country is always dealing with redshirts. Redshirting players is a very common thing. If you're not that five-star recruit that's just uber-talented, you might need a year before you're on the field ready, right? But what was hard with redshirting, let's say five or six freshmen on your team, is will they start to check out towards the end of the year? Because like they know they're not playing, but they're still supposed to go to every game and, and, and be like a team member and, and be all uber-focused when there literally is no way they're getting on the field. They can't contribute in any way outside of practice. So it's mentally they kind of go to other places, especially towards the end of the year. This new rule allowed for freshmen to play in four games and not lose their red shirt so not only is that big for okay we can get these freshmen into mop-up duty let's say we're clemson or we're you know penn state or we're one of these bigger programs and we, and we have a lot of games where we end up getting up by 25 to 30 points and we put some of our backups in well four times a year in those games you could then put freshmen in and not lose their red shirt so now I'm a redshirt freshman, I'm redshirting, but I'm still uber-focused because up to four games I can get playing time in, I can make plays, and still have four full years of eligibility after my freshman year. So I think a lot of people were for this rule, it makes a lot of sense. But anybody can redshirt, right? You don't have to redshirt when you're a freshman. You could be a true freshman, a true sophomore, and then for some reason redshirt your junior year. It's not very common, but people do that. And with this rule is allowing players like Kelly Bryant, who was a senior, this year. Kelly Bryant was a senior this year. Kelly Bryant came to Clemson, spent his freshman and sophomore year backing up Deshaun Watson. He played in some games, but he was the backup to Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson graduates. Now he's the full-blown starter. His junior year takes his team to the college football playoff. Come into his senior year, he's a starter again, but now this other guy takes his job. But he takes his job right before week five. So now he gets to say, hey, I've played in only four games, so I'm going to stop playing 
redshirt and transfer out like like anyone else could. But he's a senior, not a freshman. So a lot of people are rubbed the wrong way by this. I mean, first of all, whatever. Kelly Bryant can do that. I mean, that's the rule right now. And I understand saying, hey, football is super important to me. I, I don't know if Kelly Bryant's doing this because he still thinks he's going to play in the NFL or if he's doing it for the opposite reason, which is like, hey, I'm probably only going to play college football. I don't have some crazy good arm that's going to get me in the NFL. So I'd rather go play an entire another year of football. I mean, I understand that. Who wouldn't want to do that, right? Like, football is everything for these people. When I couldn't play football anymore, I was devastated. I still, almost every day, think back to playing football and the fact that I, I can't do it anymore. Like, I, I do a lot of fun activities now. My life is fine, but... At the end of the day, one of my favorite things in the world was playing football and being on a football team, and I don't get to do that anymore. So I totally understand Kelly Bryant as a player that wants to do this, but it just is weird for people to see in the college game a player basically, in a way, quit on his team after four games. Oh, just because you're not the starter anymore, right? We saw this happen at Oklahoma State where a starter who didn't even lose his job, we had a receiver, I think his last name was McCleskey or something like that. He's a pretty good receiver for Oklahoma State. Four games into the season, he says he's redshirting and bailing, and it's basically because he just uh, doesn't think he's getting the ball enough or doesn't think Oklahoma State's as good as he wanted to be. That is where it starts to get scary. The Kelly Bryant one isn't that scary to me. It's like, okay, you had a guy lose his job and now he wants to transfer. That does suck for Clemson's depth. Because it's like, okay, what is Clemson supposed to do now? They had two great quarterbacks, and now they only have one because Kelly Bryant's gone. And then we saw in the Syracuse game, well, Trevor Lawrence got hurt. And now they're down to who was originally a fifth-string quarterback. I mean, that that is tough. And at least the other two guys that transferred out of Clemson, at least they did it in the preseason. You know, they did it before fall camp started, or I think one of them did it after spring and the other one did it around fall. Whatever. The, the point is they both left before the season. Why didn't Kelly Bryant just leave before the season? I mean, I guess he really thought, hey, I got a chance to start all year long. But I mean, you saw Trevor Lawrence. We saw him in the spring game. I don't think anybody thought that the entire year was going to go by where Trevor Lawrence wasn't eventually the starting quarterback of Clemson. So... This rule is interesting. It is kind of a shakeup thing in the game. I would like it to... S the only change I would like to see on this rule is I would. I think it should only apply to freshmen and maybe sophomores. Like the whole part where you can play four games and leave. And also, maybe we need to make this rule not count as, the, as your transfer year. Maybe if you redshirt, that doesn't count as you sitting out a year when you transfer because you know before one of the deterrents to transferring was hey if I transfer before I graduate I have to sit out a year maybe we should just stick to that so this redshirt rule doesn't encourage more transferring but just allows players that are committed to a team to play during their redshirt year without the worry of all this transfer stuff going on because then you essentially have a free agency going on in college football. I mean, take Florida State, for example, right? They're not not—they're a pretty bad team this year, but they have a lot of talent. They have a lot of young talent, okay? What if Tamarion Terry for Florida State goes, you know what? I thought Florida State was going to be better when I committed. Turns out we're not that good, which means I'm not getting the ball as much as I wanted to. So now that we've played four games, I'm going to sit out the rest of this year and then go transfer someone next year. Well, what if half the team did that? I mean, you just... You can't have that going on. 
And I understand some people just get all caught up in like anything that gives the player more rights they love. They want the player to have these complete unlimited rights and it's like, I understand that. That makes sense. The players should have rights. But at the same time, it's like football is one of those games where you don't get to just leave your team every time your team is bad. And we see this in high school now. We see this everywhere. It's just like, dude, you that decision should be made as part of recruiting. When, when you're committing to a school, you should be committing to a school going, okay, this is the type of school I would like to be at as a backup. If you're only committing to a school to start, then that's, I don't know, that's just kind of just the wrong way to look at football. When you're picking a school to go play football at, you're picking a school, a team that best fits you, an education that best fits you, and you have to be okay being a backup, especially at the position of quarterback. There's always going to be a backup quarterback on every team. Coaches recruit two good quarterbacks at once so that they can have a quarterback battle and have a starter and have a backup. And that's how every position works. But, and I understand when you're when you're picking your school, I think you should definitely pick a team that you think you're going to start at. But you also have to go, well, if I don't start, then this is my school. I'm staying here. You know, it's one thing when you just have two future NFL quarterbacks on one team. Then it, you know, that makes more sense for one to transfer out. But like I said, that's kind of a decision like you need to make during recruiting. You need to find a school that you're going to start at. But if you do get to a school and you're not the starter, well, that's that's called football. That's called competition, right? Like, it's just, I don't know. It's hard to say where exactly I stand on it. But all I do know is that we can't have upperclassmen leaving school once the season is started. Again, that's the other thing that's rubbing people wrong with the transfers. In the past, all transferring was done in the off season. If a guy decided he was leaving, he decided that in the summer or at the very latest during fall camp before it was over. So you would never be going into a season and literally have a guy play for you and then before that same season is over, have that same guy quit on you because he's transferring somewhere. It's like, that's giving the players a little bit too much power. Like, hey, let them transfer in the offseason if they want to. But if you give them this power to transfer in the middle of the season, then there's no pressure for them to transfer in the offseason. They'll just sit and wait and go, you know what? I'll see how it goes here. Oh, I'm not getting the ball enough. Oh, I'm not starting all of a sudden. Okay, well now, oh, it hasn't been four, five games yet. I'm transferring. My coaches have been using me. I've been a part of this game plan, but I'm just going to randomly pull the rug up from under them. It's just That's just not fair to teams, to players, to coaches. It's going to damage recruiting. I mean, look at what's going on in college basketball and how sketchy the recruiting and stuff is going on there. This is a completely different type of issue, but you just open up to more poaching scenarios, and it's just that's not what we need. That's not what the sport needs. So I'm going to leave it at that. Have a great day, everybody, and enjoy the games this weekend. Remember, um, this is on SoundCloud and iTunes now. Leave reviews. It's always helpful. Remember, if you want to ask me questions, I'll even talk about them on the show. Um, Let's talk college football at gmail.com. That's where you can reach me. All right, let's enjoy the weekend, everybody, and I'll see you next week. I'm going to try to bring at least two episodes next week since this episode came out late. It's already Friday, but next week is going to be fun. We're learning more and more about the season, and hopefully we got to start talking playoffs and and New Year's Six games and, and chaos. So looking forward to it.
着。